This is Hunting Land, the podcast for land hunters and landowners with real-time rut reports, waterfowl migrations, and how-tos for habitat management and land investment. Clint, man, I sure am glad to finally see a cold north wind coming. We had a good front come through last week. You got to do a little hunting, didn't you? I did, I did. We've been waiting for uh, about a month now for a weekend like that. Looks like we got the same thing coming up for this weekend, which is good to know. But how'd you do? Did y'all, uh, did you find any ducks? We did. Uh, we were invited by a client, myself and my five-year-old, to uh, go assist him. We had a good morning. Had a lot, of, a lot of birds working. Well, what kind of birds were in? Widgeon, gadwall, and mallards. And ironically, we did not see a single, or hear, a single wood duck. Well, that's pretty rare in the state of Alabama. What kind of, uh, what were y'all hunting over? Well, we were hunting over a duck pond with some, you know, flooded crops. Always good to have the food. Yeah, you it's, got the groceries. It's a lot easier to, to attract the ducks in. Yeah, I, and you know that's uh, that's something that a lot of folks are starting to do a lot more of is planting for ducks specifically, and that's that can kind of change things. I know it's uh, kind of holds ducks in a lot of places, and uh, well, that's good. I'm glad to, glad to hear some at least some ducks in country, and uh, y'all got after them a little bit. Did you do some deer hunting too? We did, we did. How'd you, how, how's it looking up in uh, you know South Alabama? You hunting right around the, the Safford area, right along the Alabama River? Are you starting to see any kind of pre-rut activity? I did. A lot of the uh, young bucks were very, very interested. The does weren't really taking them on yet, but we were seeing a lot of activity on the ground. Yeah, that's usually that's a good sign. We've heard Matt Brock talk a lot, a lot about that in the past as you start to see those young bucks first, and you can pretty well expect pretty soon after you're going to start to see those mature bucks. They wait until the time is just right to, yeah, to yeah. really get excited. This so week ought to be getting hot. That's good to hear, man. Well, we're going to get right into it. Today we've got a rut report coming to you for the southern part of the state. I'm excited about this. we got Jay Graddick on the line. Jay's the owner of Skinner's Wild Game Processing. They've got a location in Thomasville and in Daphne, Alabama. So, Jay, you get a good cross-section of what's going on in what I would say south Alabama and also the deep south Alabama. Anything north of I-10 for those folks is those guys are Yankees to them. But uh, <laughs> what's going on up around uh, up around Thomasville? You starting to see some some rut activity coming in? Not really. Uh, we had a man. We had a banner weekend. We had a lot of huge bucks come in, but it's either the rivers up or I think the mast acorn crop is is soured and the deer are changing the food sources and moving around a good bit. But no real rut activity. You know, a spike goes out there and pesters a doe or something or some little juvenile buck, but uh, nothing more than a little scraping going on, and, and but nothing serious. Well, Clint, I know you, you've done you've hunted the river swamps your whole life. I, that's something I've been more hunting uplands and that type of thing, and it, it I'd hear guys talk about it years like this where we've got a lot of water. I would imagine that, that pushes deer out of those swamps and up into area there that they're not familiar with. Yeah, I've Probably. seen a, a lot of deer that have never left a river swamp that are now stuck inside pine plantations, and they're literally running around in circles. They don't know what to do, how to hide. And it sounds <laughs> like what you're saying, Jay, is that that's leading to some deer going down, whether whether it's rut time or not, there's some good deer going down. Absolutely. You get these guys that are hunting on the fringes of the edge of that river swamp. What deer don't find high ground down there, they do move up. And they'll be, you'll see them along roadways. They're, they're kind of they're out of their element a little bit. And they're pretty vulnerable. Well, as far as uh, as far as the year goes, we've we've talked to a lot of people this year, and it sounds like there's been a lot of really nice bucks killed. Uh, are you seeing the same thing at your facility? Absolutely. Even during the, the all that rain we had, and the temperatures weren't really colder at all, 
what deer came in, the hunters that did get out, man, they were nice. You know, I've seen them from, uh, I got a friend of mine shot one up around Orville up there. It was 170 inch deer. Wow. And, uh, I'll send you a picture of it when I get done. But, uh, then, I mean, all the way down, sir, a couple of one forties, one thirties, but the, the key to it was, is the maturity of the deer, not necessarily the rack. That's right. Um, we had a 239 pound deer brought in. Wow. Uh, we had a 211 pound deer, uh, a lot of one nineties, a lot of them already. So this year has been a really good year for, I mean, good year for, for good bucks so far. And sure. Yeah. yeah. It's not always about the score. You hear about the score a lot, but it, at the end of the day, you know, depending on where you're at, it's always important to be chasing those mature deer, not just be chasing a score. It's, Absolutely. It seems like in the, you know, the deep, deep South parts of Alabama, we start to see that rut. I've always personally witnessed it right around Martin Luther King, January 18th time frame. really seems like when it kicks off. Uh, so it seems like, you know, Clint was talking a little earlier in the show and he was, he saw a lot of younger bucks chasing. Uh, you're talking, you, you're starting to see some people saying they're seeing these these yearling bucks are starting to push the does around a little bit. So it sounds like it's just starting to get cranked up. But I really like what you said about focusing in on those food plots now with the acorn crop souring and, and those deer are now going to focus in on that. It ought to help a lot of guys this weekend if they're trying to figure out where to go. Absolutely. We're seeing deer that are coming. I, I like to talk to my customers up here in Thomasville a lot. These mature deer that they're getting, some of them are on food plots that have had, you know, light pressure. Mm-hmm. With, with, but the key to it is what I'm hearing from these people is these bucks. There might be five rack bucks in a food plot. Well, that's, you know, that's not in a couple of weeks from now, you might have five rack bucks, but they'll be chasing some. Right. And these deer are just eating. So right now with the mass crop, your wild pecans, your acorns or anything like that, it's going to sour if it hadn't already soured. These deer are going to come off of that. They're going to go to honeysuckle, greenbrier, and they're going to hit the food plot. A lot of those acres have floated down to Orange Beach, too. <laughs> yeah, I bet. You could probably build one heck of a uh, rip with just acorns coming down the river. <laughs> That's exactly right. Catch some redfish with a belly full of red oak acorns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Jay, yeah. if uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, tell, tell them a little bit about what y'all do there at Skinner's and what kind of services you offer and how they can get in touch with you. Well, we've been around for a while. Uh, uh, this place in Thomasville is, was formerly known as the Meat House. It's been here 20-something years, going on close to 30 years. A lot of the same employees that were here a long time ago. What we do is we, we skin and gut your deer up here. You can drive up here to Thomasville, pull up here, fill out your paperwork. We'll take care of it from there, and you can go on and get you some dinner or go back to the camp, whatever. We, of course, uh, snack sticks, smoke link, summer sausage, bacon burger, sausage, you know, patty sausage, uh, cube steak, burger. And uh, you get your deer with us. We don't we don't mix the meat. The deer you bring us is the deer you're going to get. And uh, we do the same down there in Daphne. It's more of a drop-off location. Uh, down there, we're, we're there usually. Uh, uh, our hours are like from 1 o'clock in the afternoon to about 8 o'clock at night. And we don't necessarily skin deer down there. Uh, but a lot of these hunters that, that hunt somewhere else bring us a lot of deer in the ice chest. So we transport them back up here to Thomasville. We do all our processing here with the same team for consistency in Thomasville. Do y'all process any hogs? Yes, sir. Uh, matter of fact, I'm hooking up a cooler right now. I've got a, I've got two big 24-foot long by 12-foot wide coolers. And we're thinking about 
the month of February, we're just going to call it pig month and not close until March 1st. And that'll give these guys and these clubs uh, a good excuse to come back up and, and shoot some pigs uh, when we're done with the, with the uh, deer. I think uh, piguary sounds better. <laughs> sounds great. Uh, hey, come up with something. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm going to put a sign on this tool. It's going to be the pig locker, you know. So we're, we're keeping everything separate from our deer uh equipment and everything so uh we're looking at doing that we uh we'll let you know for sure make sure everything works out just like we want to but uh month of february ought to be good for that well jay thanks for the report today man we'll check back in with you good luck if you make it out there and uh stay safe man yeah we'll see you clint i really like what jay said about you know seeing that those those deer keying in on those food plots because i'm always I struggle with that when, when I'm hunting, it's like, you know, if you're thinking about going out in the afternoon, personally, I'm always like, all right, well, where, where in the heck do I go? You know, you get all these good spots in your head that are good. Uh, do you stay in the, stay in the hardwoods and focus there? Do you go sit on a food plot? Do you hunt, you know, back off the food plot a little bit and, and try to catch him as he's coming in there. And it sounds like from what I'm hearing, at least in the South, South part of the state, those deer are really starting to hit those food plots. So, I like I like these little on the ground tips from folks like that. That was really good. Well, I'm glad you heard all that because all I heard was bacon burger. <laughs> right. Well, all right. Well, you know, today, Clint, we're going to talk about something that a lot of landowners don't know is out there. Uh, when it comes to resource stewardship, there are a lot of free landowner assistance programs that are available to folks. And uh, so today we've got Drew Arnold on the show with us today. Drew is the resource stewardship biologist for the Alabama Wildlife Federation. And Drew, uh, you know, welcome to the show. I want you to tell us a little bit first off about what exactly resource stewardship is in a nutshell. I appreciate y'all having me on today. First off, stewardship is more or less an ethical responsibility that we as landowners or just the general public have to the sound management and wise use of, of Alabama's resources. And, and that's really for the enjoyment of future generations. Because if we don't, if we're not responsible with our stewardship, if we don't protect and manage our resources in a wise way, uh, you know, those won't be there uh, for future generations to enjoy. And I know landowners uh, really, a lot of them really want to have those resources available for, uh, you know, kids, grandkids, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, not only that, it's uh, when you when it comes to uh, wildlife resources as well, that's that's a shared resource. It's not something that unless you've got a fence around your property, that's something that we're all work, we're all stewarding together. Uh, exactly. So, so tell us a little bit about the, the program. It's completely free, right? Right. So the Alabama Wildlife Federation, we have uh, what is called our Land Stewardship Assistance Program. AWF's Land Stewardship Assistance Program uh, was founded in 1999 with uh, one biologist, uh, Claude Jenkins, uh, but it's a free program we provide to landowners here in Alabama. And what we do is we provide uh, professional recommendations and technical assistance to landowners here in Alabama. The, the topics that we cover depends on the landowner's objectives or goals for that property, and it runs the gamut from deer management, turkey management, quail management. We also, you know, we also provide uh, technical uh, assistance for longleaf pine establishment, uh, native grassland restoration, and we've even done some pollination work and, and wetland work as well. So it really just depends uh, landowner landowner. 
And when you say technical assistance, what do you, what do you mean? So technical assistance, uh, what I mean by that more or less is, is we provide professional recommendations. And just to give you kind of an idea of what a typical um, technical assistance visit would go like is a landowner gives us a call um, and, and we discuss with them what their goals and objectives for the property are. Uh, discuss with them a little bit about what their management regime might be for their property. Uh, we take those into account, and then we'll set up a site visit, and we'll come out and we'll discuss those objectives and goals a little bit more in depth. And then we'll take a look at the habitat conditions, and we'll take that into account, and we'll make uh, technical recommendations on how to better manage the resources um, that they're trying to uh, uh, manage for. I've got a client that AWF has really helped and ultimately won or was awarded conservationist of the year. One part of his property, he's got, they've done different phases by now, but uh, Drew and his team got in there, and the first track we did was an abandoned piece of pasture, 400 acres square, had roadside, paved roads on both sides of the landowners concerned about, you know, nighttime activity from, from the locals or whoever might come by and see those big deer standing out there. So we went in and developed a plan and they took this old fence row that had no wildlife edge whatsoever, established a perimeter of, um, I think it was three or four rows of tubeland pine to give that natural screen, and established a certain depth of warm season native grasses. In the central part of the property, they helped design a waterfowl impoundment and then brought that pasture and helped design a way to convert it back to row crop, or convert it to row crop. And uh, what ultimately transpired of what was an abandoned pasture tract is this amazing balance of income-producing farmland and amazing wildlife habitat. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So, Drew, it, it sounds like what Clint's telling me is that you guys aren't coming out and staying on a phone and saying, here's this blanket recommendation of you know how to do a controlled burn. Here's here's the general synopsis. You're actually getting out there, boots on the ground, looking at specific properties and their unique needs, and and making recommendations based on what that landowner has in front of them. Right, that's exactly right. So each property is different. I can't stress this enough. Uh, every landowner has different goals or objectives, whether that's managing uh, strictly for wildlife or if they want to manage for you know timber. Uh, income and, and wildlife. Usually, there's a usually there's a balance there. We help them achieve, but um, that's exactly right. We uh, every property is unique. Every landowner is unique in their goals and objectives. And um, there's no blanket statements that we try to use uh, just because every property is so unique and different. And and so we really try to get in there, boots on the ground, and um, help landowners uh, any way we can. And I really liked what both both of you have said something that that rang in my ears and that was income, you know, cause I do like, I like making money. You know, that's, that's, that's good. And saving money is the same thing as making it, money. Well, saving money is even better than making money because you got to make, you know, after taxes, you got to make more than if you <laughs> save a dollar, you got to make a dollar 30 or a dollar 25. So, right, that's uh, right. so saving money is just as important. But reason I say that is that that kind of gets back to stewardship and the difference between what I would say and, and you know, Drew, I, I like your thoughts on this, but but when I think of stewardship, I think of kind of that that balance of how can we make this an income producing, a good investment in land, but also do good things for wildlife and good things for uh, flora and fauna and, and and everything that goes along with that, and and water, you know, and making sure that you're not just 
preserving the land. Well, that's what a lot of a lot of the you know kind of far left will want to just leave it alone. Don't touch it. You know, you see that a lot in the national forests. Is don't cut it. Don't do anything. And then it's ravaged by fire or, or destroyed by by insects and invasive species. In, invasive right. species, exactly. So. It sounds like that's really what y'all are doing here. Is you are looking at the bigger picture of look, this this has got to be a good investment, but uh, but how can we do that and accomplish the the wildlife or the those water goals, whatever it may be. Right, and you know the Alabama Wildlife Federation, while wildlife is in, in our name, uh, you know we 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 understand that landowners here in Alabama, a majority of landowners are the properties are working lands. Um, you know, people have got to they've got to have income coming in from forestry or, or uh, you know, whether it's hunting leases, things like that. You know, we, we try to work with landowners and keep in mind that, you know, these are working lands and, and they're going to where there's going to be some uh, there's going to be some trade offs. You know, you're not going to have uh, you can't always have absolute incredible wildlife habitat while at the same time having, you know, optimum economic return from forestry. So there's some trade-offs there, and we really do try to work with landowners in, in terms of, of helping them find that happy medium if it is a, a working land. You know, there, there are certain uh, situations out there where it's not a working land, and, and that landowner is not worried about economic return from timber or hunting leases or whatnot. And in a perfect world, that would be great, but that's just not the world we live in. So, for example, we see a lot of pine plantation around us, and the a buzzword here recently a lot is, is really longleaf plantation and, you know, the resurgence of that and bringing it back. How would you balance a, you know, wildlife habitat inside of a longleaf plantation setting? You know, what what's some common approaches to that? To and, I, and I'll take that a step further, Drew, is I would say, how would you balance longleaf restoration with with income goals? Because if you're talking about a tree that grows – much slower than say a, a loblolly. Where does that? How does that play into it? Well, you know, here's the thing, fellas. I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a forester, and I don't pretend to be. And a lot of these forestry questions, I will refer a landowner to a forester. Uh, I work with a lot of different foresters, um, but just from a wildlife point of view, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm not a forester, and I'm giving you my strictly from wildlife biologist point of view. Trade off there, and this is a lot of times how we approach this: is we, we go out and we take a look at the property, and um, we've got a pretty good idea uh, of suitable sites for longleaf versus loblolly. And, and again, we weigh uh, the objectives and goals of that landowner. So if, if economic return is a heavier weight for that landowner, then you know it might be it might be better for that landowner to to uh, establish more pine plantations and loblolly versus longleaf. And it really, again, that really depends on, you know, how long that landowner or how quickly that landowner needs that income. But in terms of, of, of wildlife habitat, how you would integrate that into the economic return portion of things, you know, longleaf is more suitable for wildlife habitat. And, and what I mean by that is it's flexible in management for wildlife because it can be burned often and it can be burned early and its canopy structure uh, the way it grows uh, allows more light to reach the ground and so with with those those characteristics what you're doing is you're, you're really um, uh, promoting um, uh, early successional habitat uh, a very diverse uh, understory and that's where you have most of your wildlife habitat benefit for for longleaf is, is in that understory it's not necessarily the tree but you can achieve the same results with loblolly you just might not be able to do it as quickly as you can with longleaf what i'm hearing here just from my layman country brain is that the the money's in the tree and the habitat's in the understory. 
Right. So the money's in the tree and the habitat's in the understory. Uh, it's like I said, it's not necessarily uh, the tree, uh, which I think longleaf is, is very suitable for a lot of landowners. But, you know, for certain landowners, it really might not be a viable option uh, depending on, you know, site characteristics. Site, yeah. um, and a lot of times if a landowner has about equal weight in um, economic return and wildlife, a lot of times, you know, it, it depends on the site characteristics. If you've got a, a real sandy, droughty type site you know you might favor that for longleaf establishment um just because the trees the longleaf probably do better there versus the the um, loblolly i've had you know i've had a lot of landowners that have loblolly established on a highly suitable longleaf site and uh, uh it might be a cutover and so you'll have some natural regeneration of longleaf and those longleaf on those really high upland soils those the real droughty uh, well-drained upland soils they're, they're doing a lot better than the the so we might recommend that uh, landowners with real droughty soils, real droughty sites, real dry, well-drained, um, you know, establish longleaf pine in those areas. And then some of their other more productive areas, uh, they might consider establishing loblolly. But you can again, still do the understory, the chemical releases in loblolly to kind of mimic the results of fire without affecting the, the plantations as much, right? You can. So uh, again, the key with um, the the key with the understories is light. Um, you know, you've got to have light on the ground, and uh, depending on how thick you plant, uh, you know, your long leaf, uh, you may not have as much light for as long as you want it. But with loblolly, you know, once you we achieve canopy closure, you're starting to lose a lot of that light, and therefore you lose a lot of that understory. But Again, fire is a key component as well. Man, this stuff is fascinating to me. It's my my dad's an engineer, so I've got this analytical side of my brain that just kind of divides things up into squares, you know. And I kind of think of land and sections, and then there's this land over here is going to be this much of of this many trees. And but what I'm hearing you say, and Clint, I heard you say it a little earlier, is you on a given piece of property, you, you've got different soils that are running through that property. You may have one s- section of your land that's better for the, for one type of tree. Uh, another section is better for a different type of tree and maybe a, you know, a piece in the middle that needs to be looked at for native warm season grasses. I, I just love the idea of that, that you're not just going in and, and saying, you know, hey, you re- reside in Dallas County, Alabama, so that means your land needs to be done with this and and dallas county is probably one of the most diverse counties we have in our area in terms of of soil types because it it varies greatly and quickly depending on which bend of the road you go around well clint i I mean i'm hearing a lot about trees you know we talk about that a lot in the south obviously but something that kind of gets i would say not that as much attention, uh, but I heard you mention it earlier. Is this, these native warm season grasses? I'm looking here at the uh, at the Alabama Wildlife Federation website, alabamawildlife.org, and uh, you know within the uh, Resource Stewardship Assistance Program, there's the Native Warm Season Grass Project. So, tell me a little bit about that property you were just talking about and the Native Warm Season Grasses. I, what what did you experience with that? Well, what I saw is that uh, the AWF team paired up with the landowner's forester, and they established a plan on how to, to make that truly balanced investment. So they had a uh, perimeter border of plantation, and then from that they created a, a large wildlife edge that consisted 100% of warm-season native grasses. Within, I'd say, 12 to 18 months of that being truly established, we went back and visited the site, and you could just hear the wildlife in those areas and mm. see the evidence from 
bedding habitat for deer, nesting habitat for turkey, quail. But you could hear the insects and, and things like that, that before there was nothing there but a hard edge and a barbed wire fence. And then it's now, you know, roughly 60 to 100 acres of productive timberland bordered by super prime wildlife habitat. You're making me want to get out in the woods just talking about that. Well, and this was all completed by the the team at AWF, and we were really proud to be involved with them on it. Well, Drew, you know, Clint was talking about this this warm season grass project, and he said something I know a lot of people, whenever anybody says quail, a lot of ears will bend. So is that really the goal of the warm season grass project? Is it is it birds? Uh, what What specifically are some of the objectives? Well, you know, the, the native warm season grassland pro- project is, is headed by our, our lead biologist, uh, Claude Jenkins, and this particular property that you're talking about there in Dallas County, uh, he did a uh, lion's share of the work up there, and, and I've seen it, and it's just great. But, and, you know, it's really developed uh, to support different conservation initiatives, uh, namely the National Bob White Conservation Initiative, the East Gulf Coastal Plain Joint Venture, and uh, Alabama State Wildlife Action Plan. And it's really there to um, support and establish a diversity of, 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 of grasslands for a number of wildlife, specifically grassland birds, whether that's quail or other uh, grassland nesting birds. And, uh, you know, we hold that in high priority. But, uh, you know, just to take that a little bit further, um, you know, these grasslands uh, once covered large swath of, of Alabama, especially in the, the Black Belt and, and they're real diverse habitats, diverse ecosystems that have a lot of value, not only to grassland bird species, but to all types of wildlife, uh, deer, yeah. turkeys. Uh, I've seen, they, they, seen they quite a few trophy whitetail jump out of there as well. That's been the interesting thing. We were talking on, on a previous show with uh, Ted DeVos about quail habitat, and uh, we all we, all of us get fixated on one animal. It, it seems like you got your, you got your deer guys, you got your turkey guys, you got your quail guys. But the thing that I've noticed definitely is that the guys who manage for quail have turkeys and they have big deer. It's not always the same for guys that are managing for big deer or guys even – I mean, turkeys is kind of a mix. But the, if you got quail, you've yep. typically got good deer. I think a lot of landowners are probably under the uh, under the notion that you need thicker habitat for deer. But when you re- you really think about it and just what y'all y'all said, I mean, deer use these grasslands to, to to bed in. It's not necessarily that you need thicker. It's it's more more or less the the structure and the cover and those grasslands. They provide plenty of a forage cover for deer just as much as a you know as a pine stand does. Um, and, and you know those grasslands, whether it be uh, black belt prairie or uh, you know uh, longleaf savanna, I mean they're just awesome ecosystems for for wildlife uh, resources. Well, Drew, there is a ton to cover. You guys do a lot within the resource stewardship program, and you know I'd I'd love to talk with you about it all day. I, I love every bit of this stuff, but. Uh, we're, we're running out of time, but if, if folks are listening that are landowners and they want to get in touch with you guys and get an idea of what they can do with their property, what's what's the best way to contact you guys and, and set up uh, set up a meeting? Well, the best way to get in contact with uh, AWF is, is um, like you mentioned earlier, is our, our website, which is alabamawildlife.org. And there's a, uh, there's a tab on there that's uh, resource stewardship. And uh, that's how you can get in contact with us. It has uh, my contact information. It has our uh, head biologist, Claude Jenkins, and our north biologist. Our contact information is there. And you can also get in touch with us by downloading. We have an app 
It's our landowner network app. And you can just search Alabama Wildlife Federation in your smartphones store for like Google Play or your iPhone store and download that. Uh, we post a lot of information on there for landowners and uh, landowners can, can actually share what they're doing on their property. They can ask us questions. They can actually request assistance on there. So it's a, it's a good interactive tool for landowners to have on their phone uh, if they're out and about on their property and they want to interact with uh, AWF's resource stewardship team. So feel free to uh, reach out to us and uh, give us a call and we're always here. So and it's a free service for landowners and um, we're always happy to help. Well, Drew, I don't know if I want to see what Clint's doing on his property, but uh, <laughs> but that does sound like a tremendous amount of resources. And the best thing about it is, like you said, it's it's free. So, guys, y'all take advantage of that. Drew, thanks for being on the show. We'll we'll check back in with you soon, man. Hope you have a good rest of your hunting season. We'll we'll be talking to you. Thanks, Drew. All right, all right, thanks, guys. Clint, the uh, the land nerd, could really come out in me talking to Drew and talking to those guys at AWF. I love that stuff. They could make your project list very long. Oh man, I mean. Where do you stop? Because you, and, and that's not even really the right way to look at it. Is don't especially, ever, especially stop. when it's free, right? Yeah. So, folks, if you do want to get in touch with Drew, his uh, his email is d.arnold at alabamawildlife.org, or you can give him a call at three three four three nine nine one seven nine eight. Clint, you know what I really like about this this conversation is, you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked to John Ross Havard, who's a consult forester and can really work with a landowner on on maximizing the income he's getting off of his timber. And then we talked today to Drew, who's really trying to maximize that that habitat that's available for wildlife. Yep. Are those two things mutually exclusive? Absolutely not. More times than not, there's a, a big part of both management plans that completely parallel each other. You know, I grew up hunting, and, and I always felt like, and then this was from a completely uneducated perspective, but it always felt like the habitat was getting worse where I was hunting growing up. And that just always bothered me. You know, you you get used to a piece of ground and you, you kind of know what to expect and you go back the next year and it's completely different. And, and that's, um, that's usually understory related in my experience. Yeah. So it has always been something for me as a, as a goal, as a landowner, to be able to really steward the land. I, I, I love that term because that's what you're doing. You're, of course, you want it to be a good investment. Of course, you want to maximize it the income you can get, but what good is it to you if when your kids get it or when you sell it to someone, it's not worth anything for them, you know? There's equity in that wildlife habitat. You know, you don't necessarily see it from an annual income standpoint the way you would from, you know, crop income or timber income, but it's there. Right. You know, but the really the key to this is, you know, finding that balance. So you get a consultant forester like John Ross or Ted DeVos and you know, somebody like Drew, whether it's with AWF or, or somebody in your area that performs those type services and come up with a comprehensive management plan that achieves both of those goals. The wildlife and the timber management protects both, enhances both because it's possible. All right, Clint. Cold front coming in. What you doing this weekend? I am headed to Arkansas. Okay. All right. Going after ducks, I assume. I am. I am. What part of Arkansas? We're going to be right outside Stuttgart near Bayou Mita. All right. I ought to do pretty well, I would imagine. I hope so. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Folks, we want to hear from you. So email us at pros at landhunting.com. Got a show idea or a question you want us to ask? Just email us at pros at landhunting.com. We'll see you next week.